So let me begin by asking you a question, and it's a, a simple one, but uh, seems to me a very important one. How well do you know God? As I say, that strikes me as an important question for a community like this. Uh, we want to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ tells us that the most important thing of all is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But who is this God whom we're called to love? How well do we know him? Over many years of reading God's word and paying attention to God's Holy Spirit, I've come to the conclusion that I don't know God as well as I thought I did. My picture of God is distorted. I have a lot to learn. Every time I come to God's Word, I, I have the opportunity to learn. I've been learning this week. I'm going to be learning this morning. And, and I invite you to come and to learn with me. We're in Matthew 11, and we've seen people struggling with Jesus' identity. Who is this guy? In verses 1 to 6, in the passage Neil preached a few weeks ago, we saw John struggling with Jesus' identity. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Verse 3. Last week, as Stuart preached, we saw in verses 16 to 19 that it's not only John, but a whole generation of his contemporaries who are struggling with Jesus' identity. They observe his life, and they consider him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was too unspiritual or worldly for their tastes. As we come to today's passage, we see that the issue of Jesus' identity remains unresolved. What we're going to do is we're going to begin actually in chapter 12 and then circle back to the closing verses of chapter 11. And we'll make some conclusions there about Jesus' identity. So let's begin in the opening verses of chapter 12. It's the Jewish Sabbath a holy day, a day set aside not to work. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they're out for a walk uh, in a field of grain. They're on their way, by the way, we see it later in the chapter, they're on their way to the synagogue. Uh, we see that in chapter 9. But they don't feel, it doesn't feel like they're in any particular rush. Just, I, I don't know, it's just a sense I get from the text. Maybe they're just out for a walk. The Gospels, you see, paint this intriguing and tantalizing picture of Jesus' life with his disciples. It's a picture of meals and hospitality, of friendship and retreat, of walks through the countryside. For Jesus, these relaxed interactions that he had with his disciples are every bit as important as the, the structured moments of teaching and ministry. Luke tells us that the disciples were hungry. They're walking through the, the field of golden Galilean grain, so they can't help themselves. They take some grain, they rub it in their hands, and they eat. The Pharisees saw it, and they come immediately squealing to Jesus, Look, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus, do you see what they're doing? They're breaking the rules. Do something about it. At least tell them off. It's not uncommon, is it? People who love the rules, 
generally love catching out other people who aren't keeping the rules. It was ever thus. Notice what the Pharisees are complaining about here. It mightn't be what we at first imagine. They're not accusing the disciples of trespassing, walking through someone else's field. They're not accusing them of theft. Uh, They will probably have known the provision of uh, the law in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. If you enter your neighbor's cornfield, you may pick the ears with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to the standing corn. So according to the law of Moses, it's fine to walk through your neighbor's field, take a little bit of uh, corn, rub it in your hands, as long as you don't bring your combine harvester through and take your neighbor's crop. So that's not what's bothering the Pharisees. The Pharisees are bothered that it's happening on the Sabbath. That's what this is all about. Observing the Sabbath properly was absolutely central in Judaism. This commandment was enshrined in their Ten Commandments, as you probably know. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So to the mind of the Pharisees, the disciples were violating the command not to work on the Sabbath. To help us understand where they're coming from, we need to think for a second about the Pharisees and their approach to pleasing God, their picture of God and how you please God. In Jesus' day, the party of the Pharisees, it was a a small subset of Jewish society. They're people who were disgusted by the moral laxity that they saw in the culture around them. In their minds, Israel, as it was, is far too sinful for God to show up, to rescue it, and to bless it once more. That's why they were still overrun by the Romans. What was needed was for everyone to to live a life of much greater purity, to, to keep the law. If they could demonstrate their faithfulness to God by by keeping more and more laws, more and more rules, then they they could almost twist God's arm to act. He'd have to come then. He'd have to act to rescue his people. He'd have to kick out the Romans and reestablish the nation of Israel. So what they did was they, they actually took on voluntary laws. They wrote extra laws to to show God how serious they were about living moral lives for him. So in the case of the Sabbath, they decided, right, there are 39 activities that we're going to prohibit. We know the Sabbath is about stopping our work, so we can't do any of these 39 things. And according to the Pharisees, when you lifted a few grains of corn on your way through a field, you were violating a harvesting sub-point, bullet point that they had created. You were desecrating the Sabbath. Does any of this sound familiar? People who take God's law and then put in the bullet points underneath? Maybe more familiar to our older members who grew up in a culture of Sabbath observance. In the not-too-distant past, there would have been a lot of debate in a community like this about how to keep the Sabbath. Is it okay to watch TV on a Sunday? 
Is it okay to play sport? What about going out for lunch? Just how strict do we need to be on the Sabbath? Those are the kind of questions I grew up with. This is another interesting moment. In, in ways that should surprise you, I hope they do, in these debates, Jesus often looks like the unspiritual one or the worldly one. That's, it happened a couple of weeks ago. It's happening again. What's Jesus going to say to defend himself and his disciples against this accusation? Well, to the utter amazement of the Pharisees and probably to, to his disciples as well, he, he doesn't he doesn't chuck his disciples under the bus and say they got it wrong. What he does instead is he, he reaches back into the law of God to show that what they did was fine. He reminds the Pharisees of a story and he tells them of a law very quickly. He reminds them first in verses 3 to 4 of the story of David eating consecrated bread. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 21. The law said in no uncertain terms that the, the bread of the presence held in a tabernacle was to be eaten only by the priests. But on this occasion, Ahimelech, the priest, made an exception and gave the consecrated bread to David. Human need was put before the requirements of the law. In verse 5, Jesus reminds the Pharisees of an exception to the law, this time relating directly to the Sabbath. People aren't supposed to work on a Sunday, on, a, on the Sabbath, sorry, a, a Saturday in, in our calendar. And yet the priests have to. They facilitate worship for everyone else. They have to work. I know about this. Although they technically desecrate the Sabbath, the command not to work, they're innocent because their purpose, the purpose of their work is to bless people. So for the Pharisees, the Sabbath is a day for saying, no, you can't do this, you can't do that. For Jesus, the Sabbath is a, a day for saying yes to worshiping God and to blessing other people. Jesus seems to be saying that if we're truly loving God and loving our neighbor, then there's no way we could possibly be infringing the Sabbath because that's what God gave it for. And conversely, he says, if you have any understanding of who God is or of what his law is that gets in the way of naturally loving God and loving people, then it's high time you'd another look at your interpretation of your law and your picture of God. It's okay to go for walks and eat grain on the Sabbath. It's great to do things that foster love for God and for each other. Folks, it would be very hard for the, the Pharisees and even the disciples to understand what Jesus was saying here. They were, after all, still struggling with his identity. The Pharisees have no idea who Jesus really is, and even the disciples aren't very clear about that just yet. In verses 6 to 8, Jesus gives them some clues about his identity. After talking about how the priests have to desecrate the Sabbath and do their work in the temple, he says, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. This is huge. You can't say 
you're greater than the temple. That, that's not okay. But for Jesus Christ, because of who he is, that is okay. Jesus Christ is the true temple. He is the place where we can meet God like never before. So whenever the living temple is among you, then rules about temple procedure are no longer a priority. They take second place. Having a real encounter with Jesus Christ is, is primary. In verse 8, he goes further with this line of thinking. First, he said he's greater than the temple, which might be a wee bit ambiguous. But in verse 8, he goes further. He makes a claim that equates with being God. Have a look. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who else can say that other than God? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I'm the one who gave this law. I know what it means. Watch me interpret it. Watch and learn. And as we read on verses 9 to 14, Matthew tells us of a second incident that day, Jesus does arrive in the synagogue. He'd been on his way. There's a man there with a physical disability. And for the Pharisees, it's just one of these many times when they try to set Jesus up. They, they put the, the, the man with the disability in front of Jesus, and they ask him in public for everyone to see, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You've said that it's okay to pick grain on the Sabbath, but what about healing? Just to be clear, healing people was on the Pharisees' list of 39 things you don't do on the Sabbath. The only exception is that if it's a matter of life and death, this isn't a matter of life and death, we can presume. So from their point of view, the guy with the shriveled hand, he can wait until tomorrow to get healed. The guy with the shriveled hand, if he waits till tomorrow and Jesus is no longer around, tough luck. God's rules are God's rules and they can't be broken under any circumstances. Jesus, as he'll always do, challenges their hard-heartedness, their lack of love. He simply asks, if your sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you lift it out? Isn't this man here, this precious, beautiful man here, isn't he worth so much more than your sheep? Well, then, of course, it's okay for me to help him, to heal him on the Sabbath. And without any hesitation at all, Jesus does it. Folks, we need to be clear about what's going on in this passage. Jesus Christ never once undermines the Sabbath law. He never once undermines any of the laws God has given. What he does is the same as what he always does. The lawgiver comes and shows us what the law means and how to interpret it. Jesus shows us here. He restores the Sabbath to his full glory. It's not a day for saying no, no, no. It's a day for saying yes and yes and yes to loving God and loving our neighbor. 
These disciples, they've been hanging around with Jesus on a Sabbath afternoon and having a, a wonderful snack. That's great. That's, that's Sabbath right there. That's a wonderful expression of love for God. This man healed of an illness that's ruining his life. That's great. What a dynamic expression of, of love for a neighbor. For Jesus, the Sabbath isn't a day for making and keeping rules. It's a day for love. Loving God. Loving our neighbors. In this part of his his gospel where Matthew's kept this question of Jesus' identity bubbling up. He's shown us what a gentle and a loving Savior we have in Christ. He's no dictator out to crush us into submission, but he's one who makes sure that hungry people are fed and sick people are healed. He protects the poor and the downtrodden from those who depress them. Matthew shows us, verses 18 to 21, that in doing so, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophetic prophecies. He quotes Isaiah. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he won't put out. If he's fulfilling messianic prophecies, that tells us a lot about his identity. I said at the outset that these gospel accounts confront us with questions of Jesus' identity. Who is this man? Is Jesus God? And I think that's a really important question. It's one that everyone in this building must resolve. But I don't think it's the only question. And even the best question. Let me explain. Whenever we ask the question, is Jesus God, we're, we're doing a thing that we don't realize we're doing, but, but here's what we're doing. We're acting as though we know who God is, and we're measuring Jesus Christ against this concrete standard. If Jesus does things that surprise us, or, or that we can't understand, then so much for the worse for Jesus then he doesn't stack up to my picture of God. He mustn't be God after all, or, or certainly not fully and completely God. He's God in some sort of watered down or, or temporal or God with skin on kind of way that is less than fully God. Over the years, I've come to understand the question of Jesus' identity differently. I've long ago resolved the question, is Jesus God? He absolutely is. For me, the Galilean rabbi who, who lived and, and ministered to the people, who went to a, a Roman cross, who died and rose again, he is God among us. That, that's resolved for me. But now and for years, I've been trying to answer a different question. Is God Jesus? And I'm back to where I started. I was honest with you. I told you I don't know God as well as I thought I did. My picture of God isn't right. It's one that I've inherited from being part of, you know, ordinary flawed communities, 
sitting under the leadership of ordinary flawed leaders. How could my picture of God be right? It's not. It's flawed. It needs to be corrected now in the light of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The picture of God I have in my head isn't the concrete standard. Jesus Christ is the concrete standard. And now my picture of God needs to be recalibrated so that it aligns with the concrete standard in Jesus Christ. Perhaps you're a little unsettled by what I'm sharing here today. I, I, I understand that. But I'm, I'm simply inviting you to go exactly where Scripture leads us. Paul, in his first, the first chapter of his letter to the Colossians, he says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the God we can see who clarifies our vision of the invisible God whom we can't see. Whenever the image of God that I have in my head doesn't line up with the person revealed in Jesus Christ, then it's a figment of my imagination, and I need to let it go. Friends, let's take a moment to ponder this. What would it mean if God really was Jesus? Could the Almighty God really be a friend of fishermen and foreigners? Could the King of Kings really always relentlessly be on the side of the poor and the oppressed? Could he be? Could the perfect and pure God really choose to rub shoulders with sinful tax collectors and prostitutes. We know a bit about that. We know that that's who Jesus is. But I'm asking you to consider today that that's who God is. Would God really stand up for us, even against our religious leaders? Wow. I said at the outset that we're looking at the opening verses of chapter 12 and that would circle back to the closing verses of chapter 11 to make some conclusions about Jesus' identity. Look at verses 25 to 27 of chapter 11. We get to see here very, very quickly how we come to see Jesus. I've talked about Jesus' identity, the true identity of God. I've said it's not easy to see this. The, the Pharisees didn't see it. The disciples didn't see it. I, I'm struggling to see it, but maybe learning a bit. How do we see this? Jesus says that a lot of smart people don't get this, but many humble people do. No one can get it. In fact, says Jesus, unless God shows us. No one can understand who God is unless Jesus shows them. Look at what Jesus says, verse 27. 
No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you see that? We're never going to get Jesus' identity unless God makes it clear to us. I understand that. I see that. As a minister, you can share God's word with people for years and years and years, and until God, by his Spirit, does the thing that only he can do, the revelation comes from him. And we'll also never get to know God unless Jesus reveals him to us. This is maybe the new part this morning. Unless we stay close to Jesus, unless his spirit opens our eyes, we will live the rest of our lives with a very skewed view of who God is. So I asked you a question at the outset. How well do you know God? And we've seen today that we'll only ever get to know God when we get to know Jesus. He's the one and the only one who shows us what God is fully and finally like. I want to finish this morning in the last few verses of chapter 11, thinking about God's invitation. I've deliberately chosen to phrase it like that. Some of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Have a look, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, just before you write off these well-known and for many of us possibly over-familiar words of Jesus, remember what we've been learning this morning and come back to, to this text. We've been learning about the identity of Jesus and of God. Yes, we've said Jesus is God, but we're also learning to say that God is Jesus. What Jesus does, God is doing. What Jesus says, God is saying. Do you understand me? God is speaking to you this morning as you have his word open before you. God is speaking to you in these words of Jesus. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. He's talking particularly to those who are burned out on religion. That's the context of this teaching of Jesus. Who have lived for too long under the burdens that others have laid on them. Is that you? Are you tired of it all? God's inviting you to come to him. As Jesus speaks, God promises us something. I will give you rest. 
That's right. Rest. Drop your shoulders. Breathe deeply. Relax. When you're with the Father, it's all right. Jesus, God in the flesh, he says to us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What's he talking about? Well, in those days, each rabbi had a distinctive body of teaching or or particular emphases. And this was referred to as the rabbi's yoke. We've talked about the Pharisees and their yoke, the way in which they think we should be approaching God. Their yoke was one that just got heavier and heavier and heavier as we added more and more rules and laws. Do you see what God says about his yoke? You're going to love this. My yoke's easy. My burden's light. Isn't that just glorious? In Jesus Christ, our Father God offers us escape from the crushing burden of religion. He offers us an alternative to the church leaders who simply make more and more and more rules and the church cultures which place more and more demands on us. Yoke easy. Burden light. Friends, everything that Jesus says here, God says. And it all comes in the form of an invitation. Come to me. Perhaps as we study God's word together, you're getting to know Jesus a little bit better. And and perhaps as I've invited you to do, you'll, you'll understand that getting to know Jesus better means you're getting to know God better. And so I ask you, this God who's offering this rest, are you ready to come to him? Let's pray. Father God, this is all so very different than we had imagined. We had imagined that coming to you might force new obligations on us. We knew that you offered us good things, but we imagined we might have to carry a heavy load in order to secure them. Lord, we've seen today in the, in, in the beautiful life and teaching of Jesus that you're a God who longs to lift burdens from your people. Lord, we pray that we would come to see Jesus better, come to see you, Father, more clearly and that we would run 
to you. That this invitation to come would come to each one of us as gospel good news and that we'd respond to it and very soon. We pray it in Jesus' name.